The reading this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The title of the passage is No Confidence in the Flesh. Let us hear the word of God. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Thanks, Elaine. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to your word this morning before we come to your table and we ask your blessing upon us, that you would draw us close to you as your people today. Amen. Well, this passage that Elaine read for us starts with, Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you haven't really grasped this, then you haven't been paying too much attention to Philippians because time and time again, it's this same theme, rejoice. Chapter 1, Paul said, I pray with joy. He went on to say, Christ, I preach and I rejoice and I will keep rejoicing. Then he says, here, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, he will say, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. And he will end that chapter by saying, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Remember, all this is written by a guy who's in lockdown, and the lockdown of lockdowns, he's in prison. Joy. So a simple question. Does being a Christian make you joyful? Are you known in your family, in your street, in your office, in your school, as a joyful person? contented person because you're a Christian. 
Paul was in Philippi some time before this, and as he set that church up, he found himself in prison again, flogged, chained to a wall. He sat in the darkness, and he sang hymns of praise to God. Do you hear that story in Philippians, uh, sorry, in, in Acts 16, where we, we've read it before, and you think, yeah, that's me. That's what I'd do. Or when you think more about your Christian life, does it look more like this? The Reverend I Am Jolly. And um, there's something about the Reverend I Am Jolly, Ricky Fulton's great skit, and why we keep coming back to it, particularly in the Church of Scotland, is because it actually rings home with us a little bit. And I don't just think it's about doer ministers. It's about Presbyterians in general, isn't it? Gloomy, doer, killjoys, who seem to enjoy preaching when preaching is telling other people that they should try harder or telling everybody that they're rotten or they're evil or they should feel that they need to do something deep within them. Horrible sinners and miserable failures. There, you can go out now. You've heard the gospel. It's the good news. <sighs> Finally, my brothers and sisters, says Paul, rejoice in the Lord. And this is a really critical, critical verse. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Notice the finally. Take that with a pinch of salt, by the way. He's still got two chapters to go. You've heard preachers do that as well, haven't you? Finally, the last point. Here we go, another 20 minutes. But the next bit's really important. He's honest, which some preachers aren't. And he says, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself here, folks. I'm going to start to tell you something, and you're all going to be saying, oh, we've heard you on this before, Paul. You've said this again. You've used this illustration before. It's a wee bit dull. And he says, I'm going to tell you that's what I'm doing. One old preacher says, first I tells them, then I tells them what I told them, and then I tells them what I told them I told them. Keep hammering at home, he says. I'll keep going on about it. And I can imagine the Philippian jailer, remember he's sitting in, as, as his letter's read, and I, I remember thinking, yeah, that's exactly what Paul does. It's just all about joy, isn't it? Banging on about it, about being joyful. Why does he keep banging on about this? Why is this so important? In fact, this whole passage is going to be about why we are joyful. Why? Not just because he thinks we, we revert to the reverent I am jolly, but because there's something deep within the heart of all religious people that ends up being miserable. Because there's something deep within the heart of religious people which thinks it's about doing a bunch of religious stuff. And the problem is when we think it's about doing a bunch of religious stuff or we think it's about being a good person then one of two things happens that makes us miserable. Either we think, I'm not good enough. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I haven't done all the right things and we become guilt-ridden and miserable. Or we look at the long list of things and we think, oh, I have done all that. Tick, tick, tick. And then we become judgmental because you haven't. And you haven't. You should try harder. And that's what happens when we make it all about what we have done and what we need to do. But when we understand the gospel, that we are known, that we are loved, that Jesus Christ has done enough, that we are forgiven, 
then there is no reason to be guilty. And there is no reason to be judgmental. But there is every reason to rejoice. Now, why does he say this here? And why is this so important? Because we've been going through Philippians. And one of the things that Philippians challenges us as Christians is it says that God isn't finished with you when he's forgiven you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You are still a work in progress. God is still working at you. And we've looked at humility a fortnight ago. We looked at obedience last week and the things that God is trying to change in us that we might become like his son, Jesus. But the danger when we start to talk about Christian growth and God wanting in us when we start to say God doesn't want us just to stay as we are, he wants us to change and be transformed, is that we end up thinking again, well, I don't know enough yet, and I haven't prayed enough yet, and, and I haven't gone to enough meetings, because there aren't enough meetings at the moment, there aren't any meetings at the moment. And so the guilt comes back in, or the judgment comes back in, and the antidote the antidote is that simple thing that we've been told so often that we need to hear again. That it's not about what we know or what we do or how hard we pray. It's simply about Jesus. God loved us enough that he sent his son to die for us. And all our sins, all our feelings are all dealt with on the cross when he said it is finished. This is the basic truth of the gospel. And in one way, it's so boring because we hear it time and time again. And if we don't, we should go somewhere where we do. And yet, it's the basis for everything else. It's the basis for our joy, and it should send us out singing God's praises. So Paul begins this saying, I'm going to repeat myself. It's not a lot of trouble for me to repeat myself. Preachers love doing it. But it's really vital for you. <sighs> it's like those messages that we give you that the government gives us, that the NHS gives us, that everybody gives us just now, isn't it? Ian just did it there. Stay two meters apart, wash your hands, stay safe, da-da-da-da-da, to the point where, oh, gosh, here they go again. But why do they do that? Because it's vital. Because it keeps us alive, because it's really important. The messaging matters. And it's the same with the gospel. It is so easy to forget this. Tell me the old, old story, for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. That simple truth that our relationship to God doesn't depend on some legalism or religion. It just depends on Jesus. So Paul says he's going to say it again, and then he tells us why it's so important. Verse 2, he says, because of the dogs. Now, I don't know whether you're a, a dog fan or not. I have to confess, I'm not much of a dog fan. My, my grandmother had a Jack Russell Yap, 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 yap. It put me off dogs. It really did. But when Paul talks here about dogs, he's not sort of dogophobic about the little chihuahua that someone thinks is cute and he just thinks is annoying. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's thinking here of rabid dogs. He's thinking of deadly dogs. He's thinking of dangerous dogs. He's thinking of dogs that are full of fleas and disease and are going to get you. What's he talking about, these dogs? Here's the interesting thing he's talking about Christians. Or at least people who call themselves Christians. He's talking about people who have come to his church where he preached this gospel of joy afterwards. And what they have said 
In every occasion, as they've said this, yeah, 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 you've heard about Jesus, that's great, you believe all that stuff, it's fine, but let me tell you that you need this as well. You need to do this as well. You need to take this next step. And the historical context of this is that people were going around saying, well, you know, Old Testament says God's people should be circumcised. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the next thing. And a whole set of Jewish laws that Gentile Christians were being invited to follow. And Paul is furious at these people. In fact, in Galatians, he goes even further. He says they want to do circumcision. They want to cut a little bit off. I wish wish they'd just go the whole way. He said, goodness sake, what a thing for a minister to say. But you see, he's furious because what they're saying is that whatever Jesus did on the cross, it's not quite enough. And that's theologically unsound. And he's furious because they're actually messing with people, because people who could feel secure in Jesus, he's saying, you haven't done enough yet, be worried about it, be anxious about it, that's what they're saying. And he's furious because what it does is it makes one group of Christians feel that they've got more than another group of Christians and we end up with that superiority and that smugness. The gospel says Jesus has done enough for all of us. That's why we are all equal before him. We are all saints. We are all sinners. And there is no difference. Now, Paul's real fear is that his people will go off and become Jews if they're not already Jews, and they'll get circumcised. I'm fairly sure that that's not a danger today. If any of you are considering going to get circumcised, come and have a chat with me afterwards. I don't think it'd be too hard to talk you out of it. But the same problem emerges today in that some folk come into churches and say, well, yeah, you've got Jesus, but you need to speak in tongues. Yeah, you've got Jesus, but you need to have this particular type of experience, or, or you need to go to this type of worship event, or, 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 or you need to do this or that or the next thing, because otherwise you're not really a real Christian. And we've all been in that place where somebody has made us feel second class in our Christianity. Some friend said, you left us feeling you're not really a Christian. We've all been there. Dogs, Paul calls them. Absolute Dogs. Because they take away the joy of what Jesus has done for you. So what Paul does is he takes out his CV. There it is. It was listed. He says, if anyone thinks that they've got a great CV and they've done all the religious stuff, let me tell you, I've ticked all the boxes. Circumcised, Hebrew, law-keeping, Pharisee, zeal for God. I persecuted the church. That's how enthusiastic I was. Tick, 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 I've done it all. And he goes on then to say in the next verse, But whatever these gains were, I consider loss. I consider it all loss compared to knowing Jesus. In fact, I consider it garbage. Now here is interesting. Garbage. He's taking all these religious things and he's saying next to knowing Jesus, they're garbage. In fact, the word Paul uses isn't garbage. Garbage is such a polite word. It's such a Kelvin side word, isn't it? Take out the garbage. That's not the word Paul actually uses. That's the translation being polite. The Greek word he uses is skubala. And skubala, well, skubala's got lots of letters in it, but if we were to translate it, we would use a four-letter word. It actually refers not to garbage. It refers to what goes in the sewers. It refers to excrement. He literally says it's a load of crap. In fact, he'd have used another four-letter word if we were trying to translate it into the vernacular. I'll not go there. But you know the word. 
What he's saying is, when you reduce it all to doing stuff to please God, worshipping, behaving, and all the rest of it, and you forget that it's about Jesus, it's all an absolute load of crap, peddled by dogs, and it smells like the sewer. Dump it. It's all worthless next to knowing Jesus. And then verse 9. I consider it garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now this can get quite complicated. But this is the doctrine that the Reformation was founded on. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. And it literally means this. That it's not about what we do or how hard we work or how religious we are. It's about simply this. We have faith in what Jesus did. We are justified. We are put right with God because of what Jesus did. He took our place. He took our condemnation. He took our guilt. He paid the death and he said it it is finished. It is dealt with. It is gone. So that when God looks on us, he sees the innocence of his son who went to the cross. That's what it's all about. And we might think that's deep theology, justification by faith, or in other words, substitutionary atonement. He took my place. He atoned for my sin. But it's actually very practical. Because as we started with, if you think it's all about you, and some Christians, even though they know Jesus has saved them, still deep within them, psychologically, they think they have to do something. If you think that it's all about you, then you will always be a guilt-ridden Christian. People say to me all the time when I say about being a Christian, say, oh, I'm trying to be a Christian. If you're trying to be a Christian, by the way, you will always fail and you will always have guilt until you understand that Jesus has done it. That you are forgiven and you are free and you are made into a saint. You are a saint. You are God's holy person. So if you want to have joy, first of all, you need to know that that's gone. And the second thing you need to know that it's not about you is therefore you're never better than other people. You can never do the tick box thing and say, I've, I've achieved it all. You haven't. Because that's the two types of Christians that we meet, isn't it? The guilt-ridden and the judgmental holy ones that, oops, think they know it all. You don't need to be either of that for you can have joy. And as we go through Philippians and that invitation, yes, to be changed, yes, to become like Jesus, this is God's plan for us. But yet that constant reminder, that constant assurance, that joy that we are secure in what he has done. And in our world today where everything is uncertain, where all the things that we put our hope in, all the things that we've thought were our future are suddenly really shaky in our lockdown world, whether we're in prison or in trouble or in economic distress, just to be reminded of that old, old story. Paul says he'll tell us again, because we know we forget. Jesus knew it too, when he said, do this in memory of me. For every time you take the bread and drink the wine, you proclaim my death until I come again. Because that's 
what it's all about. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's hear words that paraphrase this passage.
my joy, my righteousness, and I love.